We want to dig into a powerful passage this morning, a convicting passage for me. I was talking to the elders this morning, and it, it's a passage that we've heard before. It's actually not hard to understand what Paul is saying, but it's really hard to put it into practice and to want to put it into practice. So I'm, I, my prayer is that as we dig into it, the Holy Spirit convicts and empowers us to put his, his word into practice. It's good to hear from the missions team and, and to hear what God has done as we sent them out as ambassadors for him, just as we're all ambassadors. And we're in the middle of a section about ambassadors. And it, I don't know if you've noticed, but isn't it amazing how we will assess a whole organization based on a couple of employees, right? You, you can go into Home Depot. I'm sorry if, you, if it's Saturday. Um, you can go into Home Depot and you can be looking for something. Yesterday I was looking for something and, and it was just hard to find help. And the help that I, I did find was just sort of rude, and then they sent me to the wrong place. And you get that a couple of times at a place, and what, what happens? You don't want to go back, right? Instead of that employee is a bad employee, we jump to that Home Depot's a bad Home Depot, right? Don't we? Do, is it just me? Some, some nods. Okay, we do that. Uh, we, we had a bunch of, of fun with cars this week. And um, we were in car repair places probably seven times in the last eight days. And so it's just been one of those times. And because of the nature of where one of our cars died in South County and um, Susie's was up here, we were at two different dealers that we were working with throughout the, the week. And, and the one dealer of my car, it was hard to get a call back. In fact, one of the days I called like three or four times just to find somebody and they were supposed to call me back. And couldn't get a hold of anyone, and finally when they did, they were just really short with me. And then where Susie's car was, they called right back. There was a problem. They took it in and fixed it for free. The the guy was just kind. We drove up, and he recognized us and said, oh, your problem's this. Which which car dealer do I recommend? (laughs) That one. But we only worked with one employee at each one. Do, Do you see what I'm saying? One employee represents the organization. As Paul's been talking about ambassadorship, and I want to jump to our our text this morning, as Paul's been talking about ambassadorship, one of the things that he's reminding us is that you and I represent God. In fact, we we studied a couple weeks ago that it's as if God was making his appeal to this world through us. We are his mouthpiece. We represent God. And, and we've been talking as we've talked through Paul's, Paul's lessons on ambassadorship about being an aroma for Christ, being smelly for God. We talked about not losing heart because losing heart um, would, would dis- distract from representing God well. We talked about being jars of clay because we have this treasure inside because we represent God and we don't want anything to distract from that. And and that we have a ministry of reconciliation. And last week, Pastor Andrew talked about characteristic of faultless ministry or how to be a good ambassador. Well, then the question comes, and where we get to the text this week and how I believe it fits in, what kinds of things might distract us from being ambassadors? What kinds of things might damage our ambassadorship to a point where now people might look at us and say, not, oh, that's a bad Christian, but the organization or the God, the the kingdom we represent is now no longer worth me looking at. And that should send a little bit of chills up and down our spine. And so we come to a a warning passage, but yet admonition and and promises all all marked into one. And 
And I called it In the World But Not of the World. And like I said, these are going to be familiar passages. We've taught on them before. But they're powerful to see how it fits into ambassadorship. One, one man, a, a liberal um, theologian, so not someone I would agree with much on, but he wrote this about the church, which was really interesting. When the other side sort of sees the same thing, it's like, hey, wait a minute. He says, all around us, we see the church well acclimated to culture. Think about that. Is that our goal? Successful, respected, wealthy, full, and growing. But are the transcendent and the holy there? In the area of belief, we find widespread indifference to the Bible and ignorance of its contents and strong resentment if a biblical word of judgment is brought to bear on the life of the congregation. In worship, we find notably lacking any sense of the holy presence of God and of what worship is for. In ethics, we find the cultural ideas of friendliness and fellowship more evident than the difficult standards of the New Testament or historic Christendom. Wow. He nailed it. I agree with him. This is probably the only thing I agree with this man on. But he nailed it as he is, is watching the church acquiesce, acquiesce to the world, become more worldly, and take on more and more of the worldly form. And so Paul here says these are dangers to ambassadorship. And he gives us instructions. How do we avoid dangers? You do represent Christ. If you're a Christian in this room, you represent Christ. That's not the question. The question is, how well do you represent Christ? What image are you portraying? That employee that we worked with, those employees with the car dealers, they represented their bosses. They couldn't say, well, I'm just speaking on my own. I'm just rude because I like to be rude. No, they represented their bosses. And you and I do. And so we come to this text with fear and trembling. We want to see what Paul is saying. See, Paul is talking to a people at Corinth that were fighting idolatry. And, and you remember some of the history. And there's, there's temples all around. And they're fighting, how do I go to a business meeting that happens to be in the side room of a temple and then eat meat that might have been offered to that temple and then into this meeting happens to be a worship service for this false god? But if I don't go, I might lose, lose my opportunity to support my family. It's tough decisions. People in, in Corinth, remember, uh, social pressure was huge there and relationships. And so how do you befriend people? How do you build status with people that could care less about God and are steeped in worldliness? How do you live for God unstained in a world where sexual immorality wasn't just practiced but celebrated? We can go on and on with the things that we talked about, about the history of Corinth. But this is so pertinent to them. This is so pertinent to us. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And I'd like to read the whole passage together and then we'll break it apart into really three simple points this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting at verse 14. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a, a black hardback under one of the chairs around you. You're welcome to take that. Follow along today. If you don't have a Bible, please take that. It is the Word of God to you. The very Word of God. And so appreciate that. Feast on that. Love that. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting at verse 14. I'm going to read the whole section um, to start with. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? 
Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have this promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Let's start with prayer. Lord God, I pray that you would challenge us with these words that as we we break it apart and study what some of these verses mean and talk about how to apply them that you would step on our toes that you would create a holy people out of the people that say they are believers in this room lord that you would challenge us to live what we say thank you for your word god in jesus name amen familiar passage right one that, one that we've heard. So let's break it down. And the, the first part, we'll start with verse 14 there. Ambassadors avoid binding, deeply bonded relationships with unbelievers. So I know there's a lot of words there. Ambassadors avoid binding, deeply bonded relationships with unbelievers. Verse 14 just jumps right in. Paul just jumps right in. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Do not. And, and the, the word for do not there is to stop it. Stop being in these relationships. They are harming you. They are harming your witness. And we want to explore a little bit of what does it mean to be yoked? What does it mean to be unequally yoked? That word, and, and I don't think we have slides. I think PowerPoint's down. But um, in, in your notes, I put a little picture of a yoke. So if you hold it real close to your eyes, it'll look like the screen. Um, no, just, just You see that picture? No, it's not working for you. But do you see, Oh, it's not in the notes? It's in my notes right there. <laughs> so if you squint, no. Um, okay, so a yoke was a piece of wood. And you guys have seen these, so we'll describe them. piece of wood that would go across, and you'd hook two animals to it to tow a plow, right? And so on each side of the piece of wood, there was a loop made of either of some sort of metal or some material, and that loop would go around the neck of the cow or ox or whatever, and it would lock in place. You didn't want your cow sort of like squirming out of the yoke and running off the other way while you're plowing. Then in the center was a little ring that would tie to the plow that then the person plowing would stand on the plow to give it some weight to dig into the dirt. And these oxen would would pull the plow. Okay, so that's a yoke, right? Two people pulling the same direction for a common goal. And they're locked in place. And that's the idea. And so you got the picture now? So you're, you're your own PowerPoint. I like it. Um, think partnerships. So, so you're, you're partnering with that, that other person. Um, one commentary said unequally yoked is like being mismated. And they weren't just talking marriage. You know, our first thought on this verse, right, is marriage. And we'll go there. That's appropriate to go there. So much bigger than that. And, and, and this text, as I was studying this text, I'm like, we have had such a narrow interpretation of this text that we've missed just how convicting it is sometimes. We've made it to where we feel like we're obeying it, and in reality, maybe we're struggling. 
And so when we think of unequally yoked, we're thinking partnerships bound together. The the imagery here is out of Deuteronomy 22.10, and there's a a list of of instructions for just how to live. And one of the instructions to the Israelites is, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Now, I know that none of you have had to put that into practice this week. None of you put your ox and donkey and oh, no, no, I can't do that. We're going to do two ox. But think about this. Think about the imagery. If you put two different animals together, what happens? And they're tied together. They're yoked together. What happens? Let's say you put a cow and a goat together. Now, now for one, you have a height difference, right? And so that goat, you're probably going to hang it as it goes because the, the height's going to go up to the cow, right? Which one's going to be able to pull more? The cow. He's going to drag the goat along. So how much is the goat helping? Zero. One author had been to Israel and seen plowing happen, and they saw someone that had paired a cow with a camel. And it was, he said it was painful to watch because, again, the height difference, camels are very tall creatures, and it was yanking up on the cow and hurting its neck, choking a little bit. The cow was, was, was uh, the, the camel, actually, believe it or not, camels are fast. You want to watch Amazing Race? Yeah, that's what, yeah. You know, yeah, the racing camels. The camel is just plunging ahead, and the cow's just trying to keep, keep up as, as much as it can. It didn't work. And, and it caused pain. It caused grief. It was tough. So, so that's the imagery here that Paul says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. See, the, the two different animals work at different speeds, at different heights. What a great illustration of what happens when we partner ourselves with those that don't share the most important thing in common with us. Like two volunteers, two guys come up. Anyone brave enough? I'm not going to hurt you much. Um, thank you. Joshua, one more. John. I'm sorry, Joshua. <laughs> okay, you guys are going to hold on to this piece of rope, okay? I, I, I was thinking of using handcuffs, but I was afraid something would go wrong. Um, so you're going to hold on to this rope. You cannot let go of this rope, okay? If you let go of this rope, you fail. <laughs> Makes sense? Okay. Oh, yeah. Your goal is to be to go visit Dawn at the sound booth. Okay? So, so you, you have the same goal in mind. Let me tell you each a couple of things. Here, stand over there for just a minute. What? Tug of war? Yeah, why was it a tug of war? <laughs> oh, they each had ideas. Now, what you didn't tell and what they didn't know of each other, they thought they had the same goal, right? We're heading to dawn, to the promised land. Sorry. <laughs> um, and so often when we are meeting unbelievers, when we are considering different binding relationships with them, we think we have the same goal in mind. What I didn't tell, what they didn't know, and, and what each of us have is a whole world view under that, right? We have a world view of what is right and what is wrong, what we're willing to do and what we're not willing to do. John believed it was morally wrong to go down this aisle or that aisle. Morally wrong, okay? Sorry to those of you on the window side. 
Joshua believed it was morally wrong to go down the center aisle or that aisle. Underlying presuppositions that they believed strongly. And what happened? Nothing. Right? Struggle. Hands hurt a little bit? Pain. Did they accomplish their goal? But they had the same goal. See where I'm going with this? God commands, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. We can in our heads say, but it'll be okay. We have the same goal. But ultimately, we have nothing in common. And we can't do what God wants us to do. We cannot be ambassadors. See, some of the characteristics of a yoke, a yoke is hard to get out of. It's a bond. And so when Paul is saying, do not be unequally yoked, he's using a word for relationships that are deeper than casual relationships, that are deeper than casual relationships. It's forming bonds that are hard to get out of, something a little deeper, some commitment to each other. A yoke also forces us to go in the same direction as someone else. It forces shared values. Think about that. If I am yoked with an unbeliever, for whatever that task is, it is forcing some common objectives and some common core values. And unfortunately, I don't think I've ever seen or rarely seen the non-believer forced into being a believer. It goes the other way. It keeps us. Not only does it force us in a direction that we might not want to go, it keeps us from the direction we should go. So both Joshua and John didn't make it to their objective. Neither, in a spiritual sense, would have been ambassadors because they were pulled in different directions. A yoke requires competition. So keep in mind, now now we jump to marriage, like I said, but keep in mind that the Corinthians would have jumped there, but they would have jumped to these business partnerships. They would have jumped to the pagan practices, to the social settings where I go visit someone's home and, and a, a little mini worship service to the deity of the day erupts. They would have had to make these choices on a daily basis. I could see that it, for them it would have expanded to even relationships. There weren't a lot of Christians. And so if you're a young single woman or a young single man and your choices are are limited in the Christian field, you could see where people would say, you know what, there's a nice person at least. And even though they don't believe in God, we can go there. And Paul's saying, no, stop this. Don't be in these relationships. He backs it up by five rhetorical questions. It's not often I see him go boing, boom, 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 five times, usually one or two. But he is hitting this home. And if you look at, at the rest of the of 14 and 15, he gives us five rhetorical questions that all should have the answers, that, no way. It makes no logical sense. And he's giving a logical argument here. And, and his answer is these are ridiculous. These are unimaginable. The first, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? And he's saying there's different moral values. There's different moral values that don't come together. Righteousness being following God's laws, a straight path. Lawlessness there, the word is is to have a disregard for God's law. A disregard for law completely, actually. Partnership, there's a sharing 
and a partnership. That's, that, that word isn't koinonia. That's used in one of the other ones. This one often deals with business partnerships. And he's saying, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? None. He says, what fellowship has light with darkness? You know, we don't see dark on this side of the room and light on this side of the room and they sort of mix together and are really happy. No, it's either light or it's dark, right? They can't come together. And so Paul is using really absurdity to prove his point. Or what fellowship, what intimacy, what close relationship can light have with darkness? Keep in mind, he's actually talking about a spiritual sphere here. And so the first one deals with that we have different morals. In this one, we we live in different spiritual worlds, spiritual kingdoms, spiritual world of light versus the spiritual world of darkness. The third one there in verse 15, what accord has Christ with Belial? And Belial there, it's a word that means worthless, but at this point in in the writing of the New Testament, it had come to represent a a proper name for Satan, which I think, you know, worthless works for Satan. And so this is this was a, the name of Satan. And the, the point is, what accord has Christ with Satan? And he's reminding us we have different masters than unbelievers. Our master is Christ. If they don't know Christ, ultimately their master is Satan. And so what accord can that be? And the, the word for accord there I love, it, it's um, a word that means harmony or to sing together. It's from the Greek symphonesis. That sound familiar? Symphony? Yeah, you, yeah. <laughs> and it had the idea of musical instruments or voices coming together in harmony that complement each other. And he's saying, really, can Christ and Satan do that? Do they have anything to, to complement each other or will they ever be in harmony? No. And our master is one of the two. For them, this, this would have brought up pagan worship in their mind. Can I go worship and sing to these pagan deities? But it's more than that. This is all part of his argument. See, we've been delivered from the kingdom of darkness by our new master, Jesus Christ. In Colossians 1, 12 and 13, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance in the saints of light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. If you know Jesus, you're part of a new kingdom. You're part of a kingdom of light with a new master. And so those three different moral values, different spiritual spheres, different masters, those are all more theoretical. And now he gets really down to the practical and the fourth rhetorical question. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What portion? What are we part of? And portion is to share in a part of something. Sometimes they used it to share in a land deal to where you had multiple owners of the same land. But in this case, probably sharing in an inheritance is how the New Testament often uses it. Do your unbelieving friends share in your inheritance? No. You you, you have a whole different hope. You have a whole different future. And a whole different present because of that. There is nothing in common in the greatest gift of eternal life we will ever have. And if that is our greatest gift, if that is our priority, if that is the most important thing to me, how can I be close to somebody that has nothing in common with me on that? What I have to do to to be close to them is abandon my first love and cling to some other love, some other priority. 
it's important, and we'll get to this at the end of this, this point, he's not talking no contact here. He's not talking no day-to-day contact with unbelievers. And we'll, we'll get to some verses about that. He's talking something di- different, a deeper relationship that is yoked or bound to each other, bonded to each other. What this reminds me of is every relationship with a non-believer should have salvation as its goal. That makes sense? Think about that. I've invited people to argue with me on that. Every relationship with a non-believer should have salvation as its goal if we love them, if we care about them. Because they don't have the most important thing in common. And so Paul says, what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? And finally, the fifth one, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? We have different priorities, a different aim of life. What is important? See, when someone has not given Christ lordship of their life, something is lord of their life, and that's called an idol. And so those that you know that are unbelievers, they are worshiping idols. That's why they need Jesus. That's why they need the gospel. But you and I have the antidote. You, we, we have what they need. Here when it says what agreement the temp- has the temple of God with idols, he's going to go on in the next verse to explain it. The temple of God sometimes means individuals. You and I are the temple of God, like in 1 Corinthians 6. But in 1 Corinthians 3, he talks about the church being the temple of God. He goes on and uses the plural in the next chapter here, or in the next verse here, He's talking about we as a church family are the temple of God. And in the context here is worship. We, when we are in communion with other believers, we are worshiping God Almighty. We have the most important thing in common. You can meet a believer for the first time and and there's a connection, right? Have you ever experienced it? It's amazing because we have the most important thing in common. That connection can't be there with an unbeliever. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? What is our ultimate aim of life? What is important? What are our priorities? A couple things that you notice on these. Paul doesn't leave any middle ground. This is black and white stuff. What agreement does dark and light have? None. Not a little bit. What agreement does the temple of God have with idols? None. I remember on our Israel trip, we, we went to a place of worship and there was an a, a altar to God and right next to it were two altars or, or incense posts to Baal. Same room. You wanted to puke. Why? Because it was mixing idolatry with the worship of Yahweh, the true God. Think about that in our relationships, our affections here on earth. There's no middle ground. None of these things mix. The answer, the implied answer to every rhetorical question is none whatsoever. None whatsoever. And what Paul is showing here is the essential incompatibility. I'm I'm quoting this from one of the authors. The essential incompatibility of the people or ways of God with the people and ways aligned with with godlessness. There is an essential incompatibility. The question we have to ask is if there's not an incompatibility in our life, if we get along with, uh, with unbelievers more than we do believers, if we're fine with those attachments, with those deep relationships, the question is why when we have nothing in common supposedly. And it should make us 
challenge ourselves to look at my own heart and say, am I walking with God? Because if they're unbelievers, they're not walking with God. And so I've gone to their level. I've yoked myself and gone their direction. And it should be a wake-up call. See, what can happen? I've put six different things. We'll go through these quickly. What can happen when we're unequally yoked? Really, what's the problem, Paul? Really? This is a big deal? Five different things, sorry. Pulling the yoke in a different direction than the other hurts. It hurts. And when we are in a, an unequally yoked circumstance situation, it will hurt eventually. It may not at front, but it will eventually. Second, it distracts our attention away from being an ambassador and making disciples because that's not what they're about. They have a whole different direction they want to go. Discipleship isn't one of them. Third one, the one you are yoked to reflects on you. In a marriage, in a business partnership, even a deep friendship, that person is reflecting on me. I should be aware of that. That's my reputation. I'm an ambassador. Fourth thing, it can harm our relationship with God by potentially defiling us. That's when we get tempted to compromise. Fifth one there, it destroys our relationships with other believers. Paul in verse 13, right before this, has just said, open your heart to me. Something's holding you back. And he goes right into don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What's holding them back is their affection for the world, their relationships with the world. We, we intuitively know this. Often in, in relational conflict, you can think of triangles. And if, if I have a good relationship with my mom, for instance, and then I develop a, a relationship, a good friendship with a, a guy that's a non-believer and getting me into trouble, what's the relationship like between my mom and him? She doesn't like him because she sees what he's doing to me. Right? It hurts my relationship with my mom because she sees me going somewhere I shouldn't be going. It hurts my relationship with that person because, because someone in my life is, is opposed to that. And Paul's saying, if you're tied to the world, it affects your relationship with me because I can't support that. So how do we apply this? And, and we're spending most of our time on point number one today because the, the rest sort of just expand on that. This is the heart and soul of the passage. One of our applications is marriage. You know, we talked about that, and it's more than that, but it includes that. But I would say not just marriage, engagement, dating. When you are dating someone, is your heart involved? Yes, absolutely. It is creating a bond, a yoke that is hard to break and is deeply binding you. And so we like, I, I can remember talking to someone one time that said, well, you know what? I know he's not a Christian, but I won't marry him. I'm just going to date him casually. Six months later, you know what? I'm still not going to marry him, but engagement's okay. Really? Six months later, they get married. Well, you know, I had a bond. He's a nice guy. And the end was destruction. Horrible situation. We keep moving the bar. We need to stop it at the beginning. So some of our young people here, this is why we say don't date non-believers. Don't even start down that path. Why would you? 
if, if these, these statements by Paul are correct, you have nothing in common with them. You don't have the major thing in common. Really, when we violate this, we are trying to, to honor self. If I know God doesn't want me to date that non-believer, and I still do it, why am I doing it? I want something. I want to be loved. I want to have attention. The focus is on me. And it's sin. Don't even go down that path. Even dating, it's a bond, it's a yoke. And, and, and understand this, especially to our young people. God doesn't say this because He hates you. God says this because He loves you. And He knows what the end is and says, let's not start even going off that cliff. I have something much, much better for you. And so we do need to apply it to marriage, to engagement, to dating, to romantic relationships. Now we know from, from 1 Corinthians, Paul says if you're married to a non-believer, you already have that yoke, you already have that commitment, don't get out of the marriage. See what God will do. But don't enter it if you have that choice. Business partnerships. You know, I, I, I came out of the business world. And, and a business partnership is one of those unique things. It's a voluntary arrangement that's a lot like a marriage. And I was in a business partnership for a number of years. Praise God with a godly man that I still respect. It was still hard. He still represented me. I still represented him. We had to make decisions together. We, and, and we, both of our commitment was that the company would honor God. It was hard. Imagine doing that with someone that doesn't share your deepest values. I guarantee compromise will happen. Again, the question we have to ask is, why would I entertain this? Why would I entertain going against something God has told me not to do? And the answer is still self, usually money in that case. I think this is a too good of an opportunity to pass up. And heaven isn't. And we get into these bonds and the, these binding relationships that stop us from being good ambassadors. It's hard. Think of your closest friends. When our closest friends are unbelievers, and this I'm not even talking romantic, but our, when, with our closest friends, we are opening ourselves to them. We are creating a bond. That can't be an unbeliever. Otherwise, it will tear us down. I I did a a whole number of years of youth ministry. And two of the the biggest things that drove kids away from God, the first was hypocrisy in mom and dad. When mom and dad said they loved God but didn't live it at home. The second was when they had ungodly friends, unbelieving friends. In fact, I could almost guarantee someone's future with Christ based on the friendships they had. I don't say that lightly. Because those bonds, those yokes, eventually choke us and tear us to to a different direction. What associations do you have? What friendships? What relationships? What business partnerships? Do not be unequally yoked. The balance of this is this doesn't mean we can't have contact with them. 
In fact, and again, with Scripture, you want to compare Scripture with Scripture. Take the whole counsel of God's Word to come up with the theology, right? We've, we've talked about that a lot. In 1 Corinthians, what did Paul say about eating with them on the, on the meat? He says in 1 Corinthians 10, 27, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever's set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. He says, Go. Enjoy your time with them. Be friends with them. It's the deeper bonds of relationship that he's cautioning and warning us about. He, I already mentioned, if married to an unbeliever, he says, stay married. In, in the section on, on how a church service should be run, he says, be aware that unbelievers might come to the service, and that's good. Don't be confusing to them. Share the gospel with them. He just finished saying we're to be messengers of reconciliation to a lost and dying world. We're to be ambassadors that live in a world. That's what all this section's about. And so we can't say, you know, I don't know if any of you like the movie The Village. We can't do that. We can't all get together, go buy some land, shut the world out, and have perfect kids. Doesn't work. They're little sinners. So are we. But we, we, we think of cloistering ourselves off from a world because we hate it so much, and that's not the answer. We are ambassadors. Messengers of reconciliation. So we have to find a way to be in the world, engaging the world without being of the world. Without letting the world affect us. And those deeper relationships are what Paul warns could happen. My summary for this point at the bottom is our contact with unbelievers is with a purpose and a guardrail. With a purpose and a guardrail. Know why you're in that relationship. It's to share Jesus with them so they're saved because you care about them and have the guardrail to say, I'm not going to compromise. I'm not going to enter into situations that allow me to compromise. Make sense? Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. I know there's all kinds of situations we could talk about. I'd love to talk about those, those this week and at community groups this week. Second point, we'll do the second two pretty quickly here. Ambassadors are blessed and motivated by God's close and real relationship with us. It's interesting because Paul starts by saying, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And in chapter 7, verse 1, he says, purify yourselves. And so we have the bookends that say, do not be tainted by the world. And in the middle, we have a section that is just beautiful promises of God's presence with us. Mixed with, don't be tainted by the world. This is sort of the meat in the sandwich. For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. I love this verse. This reminds us that God is not a far off God. He indwells us, has relationship with us. In verse 16 there, when it says, as God said... That's a a clue that this whole next section, and most of your Bibles set it apart differently, this whole next section are quotes from the Old Testament. Some authors think probably six or seven different passages of the Old Testament. They all thought different ones came from different places. There's only a couple that we know for sure, because we're not sure. Because Paul is is, um, putting this in his own words a little bit, but he's coming to the Old Testament to help us understand God's presence with us and why we should be separate. He says, we're the temple of the living God. We, as a church, there is something special when we come together, guys. As we were singing this morning, especially um, I Believe this morning, oh man, that was a blessing. Because we believe. 
And it was so encouraging to sing that together. You can't get that alone. can't get that at home. We are the temple of God. He says, I will make my dwelling among them and walk with them. And that's the first couplet there. That had the idea of presence. That God is saying, I am with you. I live with you. I'm walking among you. The second two, I will be their God and they shall be my people is relationship. And we think of what God's trying to let us know here. It's presence and relationship. I'm with you and I love you. I will be their God. They will be my people. We see the same ones down, down in um, the end of 17 and 18. I will welcome you. The idea is welcoming in a presence as well as an acceptance. But then 18 is the relationship. I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And that's, that's adoption language there. Adoption's awesome. And we are adopted with a, with a father who is Almighty God. And we are sons and daughters. And God here is reminding us that in the middle of saying, be separate from the world, saying, you are part of something different. I am with you. I love you. And that should bless us, but it should also motivate us. It should also motivate us. The third point, sort of back to the other bread of the sandwich. Ambassadors separate and differentiate themselves from the world by not accepting worldliness at all. It's a little wordy, but I wanted the all in there. Ambassadors separate and differentiate themselves from the world by not accepting worldliness at all. Ambassadors, good ambassadors, are as disgusted at sin as God is. Make sense? And so we are to be disgusted by sin. We are to be appalled when we see sin happen, when we observe it in any way, when it's around us. Not so appalled that we retreat and don't interact, but so appalled that we're willing to step out of our comfort zone and say, you need Jesus. There's an answer to this. This isn't working for you. It will end in destruction. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. The idea of separate is to remove one party from another, to completely eliminate contact, completely completely. Did I mention that? Be separate. So the commands here, go out from them, be separate from them, touch no unclean thing. Don't even get close. Don't even play with it. Don't touch it. And then if you look down at verse one, cleanse or purify ourselves from every defilement, every completely not accepting worldliness at all. Do you see the pattern? I love that Paul includes himself in verse 1 too because we all need to do that. We need to end, but this passage in particular is coming from Isaiah 52.11. And the prophet Isaiah is writing to a people who have been in exile in Babylon and have started to look like Babylonians at times. Adopt their culture, adopt their practices, adopt, adopt their paganism. And in Isaiah 52.11, Isaiah writes, Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, and you who bear the vessels of the Lord. And he's saying, leave the sin behind. If we're to be good ambassadors... Avoiding the dangers. We need to not be unequally yoked. Remember that we have a relationship with God, but don't let ourselves be stained by the world in any way.
to avoid any situation that would compromise Christian faith and morals. A quote I put in your notes from John Newton. He said, I make it a rule of of Christian duty never to go to a place where there is not room for my master as well as myself. Never to go to a place where there's not room for my master as well as myself. And so a question that I try to ask myself throughout the week, uh, especially with entertainment, that's where we go a lot on this, and it's entertainment. It could be actions, actions that, that are about self, but with entertainment, would Jesus be happy watching this? Would I be cool if Jesus was sitting next to me on the couch watching this? Or would he be grieved at what he's seeing? At what he's hearing? At what I'm doing? At where I'm at on the computer? See, the relationship we have with Jesus, get this tie, that we are his temple, that he indwells us, that relationship means what bugs him should bug me. What he loves, I should love. As I draw close to God, my affections should come into alignment with who he is. If it's not, then I'm not drawing near to God and I need to stop calling myself a Christian. It's that serious. Does this bug me as much as God? See, acceptance of a principle leads to compromise, leads to involvement. And God says, touch no unclean thing. Be pure. Be clean. There's all kinds of ways you can do it. In your notes, I put a couple of different ways. Um, just on the entertainment front, um, as, as families, find family-friendly movies. Go to the library. Look there. Go to, go to Right Now Media, which we have. Uh, a new service that I, I'm, I'm looking at, VidAngel. I know their, their tagline sort of makes fun of, of, of filtering. But they, they take any movie that is out and you can rent it and then filter out all language, all nudity, all sexual contact, and, and it, it just filters it for you. A, a great way for families. Just, just keep in mind not to go buy that movie. It, it tells you what it's filtering. We need to be pursuing things that keep us pure. We need to be asking myself, is there anything in my life that Jesus would be bugged about now. Anything I enjoy doing, anything I've been willing to compromise. I want to end with a poem and then sing a song together. All the water in the world, however hard it tried, could never sink a ship unless it got inside. All the evil in the world, the wickedness and sin, can never sink the soul's craft unless it got inside. Let's not be unequally yoked. Let's have purpose to our relationships with unbelievers. Let's stomp out any worldliness that we've let creep in. God, purify us. Cleanse us. Lord, I confess there are times I don't want to give up things because I like them. Lord, I I confess that there are things in my life that I need you to purify and take away, that that I, I read these verses and I understand them, but, oh, Lord, it's hard sometimes. It's hard to be so countercultural sometimes when the world doesn't understand. But Lord, help us to obey your word and be ambassadors for you. Help us to be about changing this world for you. Not politically, not even socially, but with the gospel.
that we would be people that could share your word with pure hearts, with clean hands. Lord, right now, if there's anything in anyone in in this room, in our church family, anything they're holding on to that needs to be cleansed away, that you would take care of that right now. And your Holy Spirit would convict. Lord, if if there are bonded relationships that need to stop, that you would give courage to pursue that right now. That we would stand up for you and be a people that hears and does your word. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.